Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And we're the Old Dogs. If you've got about 20 minutes, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the Old Dogs ramble about Paul's devotion to Costco. We report on one pet's devotion to money. We bring you another edition of Ads and Fads. We tell the story of a couple's obsession with Costco far more serious than Paul's. We introduce you to the lady who plays Flo in the progressive commercials. And we discover a new kind of service to help older persons make friends. The Old Dog's conversation is with Julie Moore, a conservancy advocate who has a special interest in, wait for it, the Venus flytrap. Stay with us. Well, Paul, I think I know what's on your mind today. Oh, yeah? What's that? I think you want to talk about how much you love Costco. Oh, no, that wasn't on my mind at all, Jim. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I'm willing to talk about it. All right, let's go. Yeah, we had we had a, a, a pod nugget in today's episode about a couple that are Costco crazy. Yeah. And I got to admit, I am a guy that goes to Costco a lot. My my wife accuses me of having a relationship with one of the checkout people. Oh yeah, yep. what's his name? <laughs> it's a dog. <laughs> uh, and the prices are great. Ah, but the drawback is the quantities can be huge. Quantity. You know what I mean? Uh, give me an example. What, well, what you, would you buy? Uh, toilet paper. Toilet paper. You, you go to a normal uh, a grocery store and, and you'll get six, maybe at most 10 rolls of toilet paper. I, I get paper a dozen. I get a, a dozen. Package. Well, it's 24 rolls to 36 rolls at Costco. Wow. So you've got to have a, a storage place for some of this stuff. And, you know, uh, soft drinks, for example. Again, yeah. you don't get a six-pack. You get a 48-pack. Jeez. Right? I couldn't even lift a 48-pack. How do you get it out of the store? Well, maybe you could use the exercise. <laughs> Next time I go to Costco, I'll have you come and lift up the soda for me. Oh, okay. Uh, what else? What else? But they have also great buys on food. Okay. Uh, but it's usually two at a time. To what? Uh, well, let's say uh, you want to buy a lasagna. Well, you don't get one frozen lasagna. You get two of them packaged Okay. Together. But at least you don't get 24. 24 seems to be a big number at Costco. Well, I'm sure you could if you wanted to. Okay. Well, what is the weirdest thing uh, that Costco offers that you may have purchased, but I mean, you didn't necessarily have to buy it. What's the weirdest thing you've seen at Costco for sale? Wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm hard-pressed to answer that, but I can tell you what their biggest item is, the most okay. popular item. All right. Is a large hot dog and a soft drink that they sell for a dollar fifty. Wow. And it has been this price since the eighties. Uh-huh. And that's something that they're very proud of. They've mm-hmm. they've managed to keep that one fifty price. I don't know how much they're losing these days, but I have had friends that actually schedule lunches there every once in a while to get that buck fifty hot dog. Don't you have to buy twenty four of them? No, no, not at their snack bar. But again, oh. you could if you want. All right. They have a very limited kind of a snack bar. But, you know, when you're lifting those big packages, you know, 24 rolls of toilet paper, you get hungry. So it's a natural thing. Well, Paul, I got to hand it to you. If what? I were you, I would never leave Costco. I'm surprised to see you here today for this this conversation. 
Well, you know, I start to itch if I don't go once a week. So oh, is that what you've been doing there? I, I may have to leave after this <laughs> and uh, get into Costco. Would you like 24 of something? Yeah, anything. Uh, get me 24 um, uh, knishes. Sky News reported on a story that's a twist on the dog ate my homework. Clayton and Carrie Law withdrew $4,000 in cash to pay some gardeners. The money was in assorted $50 and $100 bills, which they left on a kitchen counter thinking it was a safe place. However, their golden doodle named Cecil thought he found a new chew toy and proceeded to munch his way through the <laughs> cash. By the time the couple noticed the theft... Most of the bills were inside Cecil. <laughs> they realized that their only hope for recovery was to piece the money back together, so they started the unappetizing process of taping together the pieces on the floor with the pieces the dog threw up, and finally, after several hours, the pieces that passed through his system. Ooh, mm. after a lot of scrubbing, they managed to tape together $3,550. <laughs> now, I don't know if they're planning to wait around for more cash to appear, but I rather doubt it. <laughs> Cecil's career as an ATM is over. In this edition of Ads and Fads, we focus on a beauty aid that took off in the 50s due to a provocative ad campaign. The slogan for the campaign was, Does she or doesn't she? The product was an immediate success. Within a decade, nearly half of all women were using it. To solve our ads and fads puzzle, name the product and the tagline from the advertising that explained just what she did or didn't do. We'll be back later with the answers. David and Susan Schwartz have a large-sized love for Costco, the retailer known for their large-sized consumer products. In fact, the couple have traveled over 220,000 miles in order to visit more than 200 Costco warehouses. The product of their travels is a book titled The Joy of Costco, a treasure hunt from A to Z. If you're a fan of Costco... You could display this book on your coffee table as a sign of your loyalty. And if not, it could be good bathroom reading as it's full of fun facts about the retailer, such as Costco sells more hot dogs than all the major league stadiums combined. Mm -hmm. And Costco sold more than 4 billion eggs in 2016. Stuff like that could come in handy when the conversation lags. The irony is that Costco sells products in sizes suitable for an army platoon, but David and Susan live in a tiny apartment in Manhattan that measures 450 square feet. Is that right? Yep. 450? Mm. That's it. Susan says they manage their Costco buying through inventory control. And I'd add through infrequent trips to Costco, at least the oh, local I, one. I have this picture of wall-to-wall -to -wall toilet paper. <laughs> I don't know why. I know. <laughs> The New York Times recently featured a story about Stephanie Courtney, better known as Flo from Progressive Insurance. Ms. Courtney has been playing the character for 15 years, which makes her one of the more successful commercial actors in the country. At the time she was first cast as Flo, she'd been trying to make it in Hollywood for 10 years. In her words, I was so stinking broke. She owed money to family, friends, her manager, and a fistful of credit cards. 
And among other challenges, her car wouldn't go in reverse, which required some creative parallel parking. Some 200 commercials later, she no longer has to worry about parking her car so it faces downhill. Although the actual sum is unknown, an established commercial agent estimated her income at $10 million a year. Now that sum may seem large, but Progressive estimates that 99% of consumers of insurance know flow. At the time the Progressive ads featuring Flow started, the Progressive stock price was under $15. It recently closed at $157.67. I would say the ads have been successful. Yep. Stephanie Courtney has had to let go of dreams of being a famous and successful comic actress named Stephanie Courtney. She is Flow from Progressive. That identification keeps her from pursuing other projects. While there may be some sadness over opportunities lost, you can wipe away a lot of tears with $10 million. Yeah, you wouldn't even need them in ones. You could do it in hundreds, <laughs> wipe away your tears. Here's the answers for ads and fads. The product was Clairol Hair Coloring, and the tagline was, Hair coloring so natural, only her hairdresser knows for sure. The hugely successful campaign was the product of Shirley Polikoff, the lone female copywriter at Clairol's ad agency. And by the way, it was only the men in the agency who thought the ad was too suggestive. <laughs> Dirty old men. Yeah. If you are older and can use more friends, the Houston Chronicle suggests a new app that could help. It's called Wiser Friends. Wiser is spelt W-Y-Z-E-R. Now, this is not a dating app. It's for folks 40 and up who would like to enlarge their circle of friends. Whether you are single or in a relationship, it doesn't matter, since the goal is social, not romance. Wiser Friends matches people based on age range, location, shared interests, activities, and health and wellness goals. A key feature is ID verification, which ensures that user profiles match their government IDs. It's a fact that as we age, our circle of friends shrinks. And are research. You getting, are you shrinking, buddy? <laughs> uh, loaded question. And research has shown that having a strong social support network can help fight depression and anxiety. This is a tool to seek out like-minded folks who could become friends. Now, if this interests you, go to their website, www.wiser, once more spelled W-Y-Z-E-R, friends.com. They have complete information about their goals and the various features of their app. At the site, you can also download the app for free from Apple and Google Play. Wiser Friends is just starting out, so the circle of possible friends is growing, and you may need some patience to find what you're looking for. However, it is refreshing to see someone catering to folks our age with an app that has a serious purpose. Yeah. Julie Moore wants everyone to know about a species of plant that exists only in the Carolinas. It's the Venus flytrap, and it's endangered. 
Julie ought to know. She is active in native plant conservation organizations and local land trusts, is past president of the Triangle Land Conservancy and Botanical Society of Washington, D.C., founding board member of the Longleaf Alliance, the B.W. Wells Association, and more recently, the Southern Conservation Partners. She also serves as chairman of the board of the NC Plant Conservation Program. She is coordinator for Venus Flytrap Champions, a project of Southern Conservation Partners. Julie, to get started, could you give us a little bit of background, education, and your drift towards where you finally ended up today? Well, actually, where I've ended up today is based on my long history of uh, education and uh, work that I've done. I was always interested in plants, and I have a uh, undergraduate degree in biology and then uh, a master's degree in botany uh, from uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and that got me into the North Carolina area. And I began my work as a field biologist, and then I worked in North Carolina uh, for something called the Natural Heritage Program, which is a state's endangered species program. And I did that for over a dozen years and loved being here in North Carolina. But I've migrated throughout the South. One of my specialties is longleaf pine. I don't know if you all know what pine that is. That's one of the giant cones and yep. the long needles, mm-hmm. uh, the whole turpentine industry. And I migrated across the South. And I ended up in Washington, D.C., for about a dozen years working for the federal government in different capacities, but with endangered species issues. So uh, rare creatures, starting with plants, but I worked with many different things through the years. Um, Fish, snails, birds, snakes, um, all kinds of different species to make sure that uh, we knew what we had and what we were losing. Mm. And I just want to say that conservation business is a very hard business. It's all about loss. There are a few wins, but not many. Mm. And so it's uh, it's a hard work. It's And it's not, uh, I'd say there are parts of it that are rewarding, but it's a lot about uh, watching things go by the by. About uh, one of your wins. You talked about wins and losses. Uh, what was a win and what was a loss? What's been a win lately is meeting people who are excited about what's in their neighborhood. If you can get 25 people out to help you rescue Venus flytraps, dig them up and replant them, and to get so excited about it, then have people show up with hats with flytraps on, (laughs) earrings with flytraps, and the pictures of their son with the flytraps. That's just basic awareness. You know, it's one thing to think about the Amazon or the Antarctic or to think about things that are far away. But when you realize something is in your domain, is right there, I think that's the most powerful kind of interaction we can get. Years ago, when I was working um, with the Fish and Wildlife Service, we worked with a very rare toad, the Laramie toad. And it was a bit controversial because you didn't want cattle in areas around big lakes and ponds where they would stomp along the edges where the toads were breeding. And there was a good bit of pushback, actually, from the ranchers. Why should we care about that? My business is cattle. But once they realized the Laramie toad was really just in their backyard, that they control the fate of that species, they got much more interested, much more sympathetic. In time, uh, there was a breeding program in a local zoo, not too local, but uh, grew these uh, from tadpoles and grew the toads again. And one of the ranchers who had been so uh, anti was honored to be asked to release the toads on his pond. Three years before, he could have given a damn about those toads. But once he realized that they were his, they were his toads. 
that makes a difference because it's not always what's far away. It's it's what's what flies over, what's nesting, what migrates through your yard or what's there permanently. Uh, how did you come to focus your attention on Venus flytraps? Well, I've known about flytraps since I came to graduate school at, at Chapel Hill 60 years ago almost. And at one time they weren't considered too rare. And then they become rare, as I mentioned, all that's going on in our coastal areas. What happened was uh, a professor from the University of Michigan petitioned the Fish and Wildlife Service to list the flytrap. And because of that, money became available to really, what is the situation? How many do we have? Where are they? Are they where they used to be, where they're not used to be? And that uh, generated a tremendous amount of information. And a team was hired to go out and check these sites. Now, if I'd been a young person, I'd been on one of those teams. That's what I did for years was verify things like that. A huge report came out in about uh, 2019 or 20 that identified where the flytraps were and said who owned them and what the management needs were and were they flowering or not flowering. Well, this was a massive, to me, a document that just gave you so much information to deal with those landowners. But nobody had the money for the follow-through. And besides, it was decided maybe it wasn't as rare as we thought it was, and it was going to be okay on public lands like uh, the Croatan National Forest or Camp Lejeune. But I, but I knew that that information was so available that I wanted to do something about it. And so that's what got me started, is I was aware of the species, I'd watched it through time, and now we had this incredible data set that told us where they were and gave people's telephone numbers because they'd gotten permission from the landowners to go on their land to see if they were if the fly traps were there or had been at one time. So I felt like there was this gift out there, and I had the time in my retirement, but I really didn't realize I was going to get quite so involved with these fly traps. <laughs> So part of it is acknowledging who's doing a good job and getting other people to do what they can, whether it's helping us dig them and move them or raise money for an interpretive area. That's a, someone's volunteered to do that. Another woman contacted me the other day saying that she met me someplace and heard something, but she has a graphic designer and she wants to help design the educational materials that we use. So people are willing to do things once they become aware and I think what I try to do is find match them up with a need or how to make their, their talents useful. So what parts of the country can you find Venus flytraps? Well, only in about 17 counties originally in North and South Carolina. And that range is reduced greatly to less than a dozen areas. We've lost a lot of the habitat in South Carolina. That's the saddest thing is that part of the coast, their coastal plants. And they grow in an odd habitat that is both wet and then dry. And when it's dry, that allows for burning, which is essential to basically burning, uh, controlled burning is a, is a management technique. So we have a lot on public land, but we still have a lot on private land. And those are the people who I really want to encourage uh, if they are interested and have the time to look after these plants. So for our, our listeners in other parts of the country whose only exposure to a Venus flytrap is little shop of horrors. <laughs> how, how would you describe this very unique plant? Well, the thing that's surprising, and what most my references, I hope I made clear, were for North and South Carolina and coastal areas. People think they're bigger than they are, yeah. thanks to that. Thing. They really sit pretty flat on the ground, and the traps uh, are modified leaves. And the reason they eat insects is because they're hungry, because the soils they grow in are so poor. Uh, that they get nitrogen and other uh, 
micronutrients uh, from the, what they trap. So these aren't huge plants. They're really pretty. The, the, the flowers are very pretty. They do form. They have chlorophyll. Uh, so they make food, but they need that extra that they're getting because the soils they grow on are so nutrient poor. And that's why all the insectivorous plants have developed that uh, lifestyle is because the habitats they're in don't provide all that they need. Hmm. So there are other insectivorous insectivorous Insectivorous. <laughs> that was a good try, Jim. Yeah. Some people say carnivorous uh, uh, because they think they eat uh, things besides insects. Mm. Now and then a little frog or something might be eaten. But mm. we have, uh, I think, 16 different species of insectivorous plants, uh, at least in the Carolinas. And we have pitcher plants, which are tall and thin. And uh, some of them, though, have pitcher leaves just like pitchers right on the ground. Mm. Uh, we have about seven or eight of those, and we have little ones that have little sticky glands called sundews that are really cool, and they get catch tiny, tiny little uh, gnats and things like that on these sticky little glands. And there are a couple other different species that we have too. So the carnivory has has evolved in more than one plant family. But the issue is we have several pitcher plants. We have several sundews. We have several of the other kinds, the pinguiculas and different ones. But there's only one flytrap. And in this whole world, there's only one flytrap. There's nothing else, anywhere else. And the fact it's not in the tropics, it's not in the Philippines, it's not in an exotic place, that it's uh, in coastal U.S. is pretty amazing. Many, many years ago when it was first described and sent back to England in the 1600s, I think people always thought we'd find them somewhere else, something similar, or one with bigger flowers or pink flowers or a modification but this is the only one. So why did you choose the Venus flytrap of all the other possible things you could have focused on? Flytraps are kind of a good bait. If you can get somebody interested in a flytrap, then you can build on from there to get them interested in other issues, uh, sea level rise, burning. But also it was the fact nobody else was doing it. And part of what you want to do is not if you're interested in what I'm interested in, you don't want to repeat things that people have already done particularly. And there was a need. And all you have to do is drive around in eastern Carolinas and see the development. And you know these flytraps aren't going to last in the wild. People are going to have them in um, botanical gardens and private collections, but they're not going to have them be out there in the wild anymore. And I felt pretty compelled that that was – we had an opportunity now to make a difference. Besides, these are just so cool. I mean, can you yeah. think of anything yeah. else that is they something are. that eats – I mean, you know, it's like I've worked on some really obscure things, but these aren't. And people love them. So I wouldn't say it's easy, but it is easy. <laughs> Folks our age uh, tend to have a lot of time for volunteering. What would you suggest uh, if people are concerned about an inheritable earth? What, how would you suggest they get involved? Well, if you like to actually work, you're a special kind of volunteer. Uh, I have friends who volunteer at various botanical gardens, but we also have land trusts and we have uh, parks, city, state, federal parks, where we really have issues that could use those hands. But the main thing is if you like to get out in the landscape, find a group that works on the landscape level that'll help improve a park. Uh, one of my uh, acquaintances ran a wonderful about a program, uh, Mountains of the Sea Trail program. Well, her, what she likes in her immediate retirement is going into those small parks in, in the town 
and getting rid of invasives. You can see the difference immediately. You can see how fast you can make a difference. So find a, a particular area that has uh, things of interest. Usually it's helpful if it's close to you so you can get there regularly and go out and volunteer. You know, it's one thing to want to educate people who come to communities. That's great. But if you're the kind who actually likes to pull weeds, there's a place for you. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.